Good morning, Sun Valley. As we know by now in our study of the book of Mark, uh, Mark is presenting Jesus as God in human flesh, the solution to our personal chaos and world chaos for that matter. Uh, by way of reminder, the gospel of Mark was written by a young man named John Mark, who was probably an assistant pastor to the apostle Peter in Rome. It's not certain, but there's a likelihood that that by this time when this letter was written, the apostle Peter had already been executed, martyred, and Mark here was simply sending a letter to his church in Rome to encourage their hearts, to, to remind them that they've made the right choice in following Christ. Their world was full of chaos. Nero was the emperor. He was chasing down Christians and killing them every which way possible. Uh, their personal lives, their family lives, their professional lives were chaotic. It's similar to our situation, minus the intense persecution. Uh, we've, I think, experienced some chaos in the past couple of years as individuals in America and around the world, really. And so this is one of the reasons we're studying the Gospel of Mark, is because this particular book has much to share with us about our decision to follow Christ, much comfort, peace, assurance, knowing that we in fact have chosen rightly, as did this first century church, that Jesus, we've embraced him as our Lord and Savior as the solution to our personal chaos. So as we think through our text today, I want you to keep in mind all these things that, that have gone before us. I know that's, that's a little challenging, but uh, it, it's helpful to kind of keep the flow of thought going. Uh, as we read and study through the text. But let me read for you, if I could, Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called him, or called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, to have authority and to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's the word of God for the day. Mark has recorded, as we've gone through, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, a litany of evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and along the way, good reason to put our hope in him, good reason to hope that he can actually solve the chaos around us. And Mark continues this same theme in our text this morning that Jesus is the solution to our chaos. What I want you to walk away with this morning is a clearer picture of Jesus, a, a, a sense of his love for you, and an understanding of his purpose for your life. Let me say that again, there's three things. A clear picture of Jesus, a, a sense of his deep love for you, and an understanding of his purpose for your life, particularly. I've broken this sermon up into three points, and they're as follows. A theological focus, 
that answers the question, what do we learn about God in this passage? A practical focus, what did Jesus want out of his disciples, these apostles that he chose, the 12? And then thirdly, a personal focus, what does Jesus want out of me? So a theological focus, practical focus, and a personal focus. Let's start with the theological focus. What do we learn about God from this passage? That's always, by the way, a good question to ask yourself when you're reading your Bible or when you're listening to a sermon. What does this teach me about God? It'll help you, guide you, as you think through the Word of God on your own. The first thing I want to point out to you here is that we see that, evidently, God was a mountain man. Do you see that? And he went up onto the mountain. Seems that Jesus spent a lot of time on the mountain, either the mountain in Galilee or the mountain near Jerusalem, Olivet. And every time he's on the mountain, there's a reason, an important reason, that it's recorded that he's on the mountain. Who else in biblical history do we know that spent some time on a mountain getting revelation from God? Does Moses sound familiar to you? This isn't, this isn't circumstance here, by circumstance. This is intended for us to see and connect the dots on. Mark wants us to see that this one on the mountain here in Galilee is closely related to the one on the mountain back in Jewish history. No, this mountain man isn't Grizzly Adams in that sense of the word, mountain man, but going up onto the mountain is significant. Listen to this written by uh, Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so in the Old Testament, if there is one great prophet, it is Moses. And he said, in time, eventually, there will come a prophet like me you need to listen to him. Guess who that was? Jesus. This is why the New Testament writers refer to the mountain so much. It's because they want us to connect the dots. This is the prophet of whom Moses spoke. This is the one that you have made the right choice. This is he. This is the promised Messiah. Keep on keeping on. And so when we see New Testament authors reflecting Old Testament prophecy in the life of Jesus, it's something that we need to be attentive to. As we've read through Mark's gospel, and it'll continue through the end of the study, he sprinkles out connections of messianic prophecies in order to help hurting Christians in Rome, struggling with chaos, to gain confidence, to gain assurance that this is the right way. We're heading in the right direction. But he says here that what we can learn about God is that Jesus is connected directly to Moses. Secondly, we see that God is a choosing man. Look what he says. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. He chose 12 guys. He's a choosing man. What does this tell us about God? That God's an electing God. Right? This is important. Before he chose the 12, though, and this is a sidelight. I'm, I'm adding it kind of outside the, the context of, of the outline here, if you would allow that for a minute. Before he chose the 12, he went up on this mountain, and it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he prayed all night. He prayed all night to prepare his heart to make the right decision about choosing the 12. 
Do you think choosing the 12 is an important decision? <laughs> yeah, very important decision. It says, in these days he went up onto the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. And I, like I said, this is a sidebar, but if Jesus felt the need to bathe this kind of decision in a marathon prayer session, what does that say to us about the decisions we have to make, about the families we have to raise, about the people we have to deal with at work in our neighborhood, that maybe we ought to be praying also? Along with this sidelight, people ask the question, if God loves me so much, if he knows me so deeply if, and perfectly, why do I need to pray? Well, that question, of course, comes from the assumption that prayer is about making requests to God. But Prayer is much more than making requests to God, isn't it? It's about communion with our Creator. It's about communion with our Savior and Lord. George MacDonald um, had the same question posed to him by, by one of his congregants in his church. If God loves us so deeply and knows us so perfectly, why do we need to pray, Pastor MacDonald? Listen to his answer. What if he, God, knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great and endless need of himself? What if the good of all of our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help us drive us to God? Are you following me here? The reason you got issues that you bring to God is so that you'll come to God with your issues. He goes, communion with God is the one need of the soul beyond all other needs. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is the motive of that prayer. This is why you have needs and prayers, to drive you into the presence of God. Otherwise, we would never go, would we? <laughs> no. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with God, our eternal need. Jesus, our model, prayed profoundly, deeply, extensively about decisions in his daily life. A great example for us. Let's get back to the text here, jump back into the sermon. The reason God chooses anyone, listen, whether it be the 12 or you or me, the reason he chooses anyone is to use us, use the 12 as a vehicle of grace to bear fruit. That's why he chooses us. To be a vehicle of grace, to bear fruit. When he chose you, he did so not to reserve your place in heaven, as wonderful as that is. That's not why you're saved, to get to heaven. He chose you to accomplish his purposes in you and through you. Remember John 15, 16? Jesus said to these 12 guys, I chose you, what's the next part? To bear fruit. That's why I chose you. I didn't choose you to get to heaven. I didn't choose you so that you'd be amongst an elite group of really good people. No, I chose you to bear fruit. He chose us to love and worship him and to love and serve people. That's why you're chosen. That's why you're in the family of God. It's not to get you to heaven. It's to love and serve people, to worship and love God. And those two things are connected, aren't they? The way you love God is to love people. The way you serve God is to serve people. It's a great arrangement that God has for us. This is what we see the apostles doing all throughout the book of Acts. Worshiping, loving God, 
serving and loving people. Jesus is a choosing man because God is a choosing God. In Romans 9, some of you were here when we studied that great chapter. Paul was explaining and defending the character of God, and he referred to Exodus 33, verse 19, to support his argument. Listen to what uh, Moses wrote in Exodus 33:19 that reveals to us the character of God concerning this point. He's a choosing God. Moses wrote, and he said, I will make all my goodness, who said? God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Here's my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. <laughs> In this Exodus passage, God describes himself to Moses who is asking about his character, what his primary character trait is, I'm a choosing God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So, if the God of Moses, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is a choosing God, what's that make Jesus? A choosing God, a choosing God man. That's what it makes him. This is one of the primary concerns of the gospel authors is so that the readers understand the true identity of Jesus Christ. He is God, and since he's God, he is just like his father in nature. And if God, the father, is choosing God, he is a choosing God man. Jesus not only chose his 12 disciples, but listen closely. Are you following me? Jesus chose you if you are in Christ. He not only chose these 12, he chose you if you are here today believing in him. Everyone who comes by faith to him are chosen by him. And since he chose the 12, the next obvious step would be for those he chose to respond to that choosing and come to him, right? Doesn't that make sense? Well, and that's in fact what we, we see recorded here. Look at verse 13 again. He went up on the mountain, called him to those whom he desired, and what happened? They came. If God chose them, the next thing is they come. Every time. That's why I've got this next section titled, An Attractive Man. Now, when I say attractive man, I don't mean physically attractive. Isaiah 53 puts that possibility to rest. Says he was not attractive physically. What I mean is that Jesus effectively drew everyone he wanted to himself. He was a divine magnet to those he, he, that he, he desired. They came to him, it said. You know what we call this? Get ready. One of my favorite, favorite doctrines, irresistible grace. That's what this is right here in front of us. Irresistible grace. When Jesus calls, they come. Andrew, Peter, James, John, Levi, now the rest of the 12. You guys, come with me. What did they do? They came. It was irresistible call. No one who is called refuses to come. The same is true today. When Jesus calls someone to himself, they come. You remember what he said in John 10? My sheep hear my voice and what? They follow me. If he calls your name, you come. Listen to this from Romans 8. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Roman church. 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew and predestined, when did he foreknow and predestined people? Back there, right? Eternity past, Ephesians 1. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So back then, God chose us, if we we're in Christ, to become like Jesus in time. He 
foreknew us, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. He made sure they were right with God, and those he justified, he glorified. So if you've been predestined by God in eternity past and eternity future, you will be with him. And in between, sandwiched in between your predestination and your glorification is your calling. During your lifetime, the call of God on your life and you respond to the gospel. Jesus looks good to you and you come, just like these guys. And they came to him, it says there in verse 13. The call of the twelve that day on the mountain was specific and personal, except for Judas. Of course, we know that story. I had somebody come up to me after the first service. Well, what about Judas? I said, well, I do have only 40 minutes. So uh, if you're in a small group, you'll be talking about that part of this passage when you're in your small group. But this was, this was not a general invitation. Jesus didn't come down from the mountain and give a general invitation to all. Hey, anybody want to be my disciple, an apostle maybe? Raise your hand. Uh, yeah, okay, no. He didn't do it that way. He said, you, 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 you and you and you, out of the thousands that were there, you're following me. And they did. They came. Theologians make the distinction between two different kinds of calls. There's this general call where Jesus is giving a general invitation to people like come to me, 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And like John seven thirty seven, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Generally speaking, if you're tired or you're thirsty, come to me and I will satisfy. There's, that's the general call. It's the kind of call that you and I make to our neighbors and friends. Why don't you come to Jesus? Listen to the gospel message, a general call. But then there's the second kind of call. It's called a specific call, a personal call, an internal call. That's what these guys heard, minus Judas. So this is a public call in the general sense, and then there's a private, personal, effective call in the special sense. And the thing that you need to understand is that people resist the general call all the time. Not everybody who hears a gospel invitation comes to Christ. Nobody resists the specific call. It's irresistible. If Jesus calls you by name, you come. And let me give you some evidence for that. Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus in John 11. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus shouldn't sit back and go, well, I'm kind of comfy here in these nice, warm, grave clothes. I think I'll stay here. No. You know what? He came. And commentators usually make the tongue-in-cheek comment, good thing he said Lazarus come forth, right? Otherwise, everybody would have come forth because God said, come forth. This is, in this case, Lazarus come forth. And whoop, there he was. He came forth. It was an irresistible call. He had no choice. He was dead, and God called him to life. In your case, and in my case, it's the very same thing. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in his mercy called you to Christ, and up you came. Death to life. That's what happens. It's irresistible. 
for all who receive this specific internal call. Some people say, and they worry about this, and say, oh, sure, sure hope God chose me. How do I know if I've received this special call? Here's the answer. Listen closely if you've ever wondered about this. Have you responded to the gospel? Have you said yes to Christ? Have you bowed the knee? Then you've been called. <laughs> if you haven't, that call hasn't gone out yet. We pray that it will. That's why we pray, in fact, <laughs> that our friends, neighbors, and children will come to Christ, that they'll receive the specific call. They hear the general call all the time. I give the general call almost every single week. When you share the gospel with your friends, you give the general call. There's only one that can give the specific, personal, effective call, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> come, and we come. What a wonderful truth that is. The apostle uh, said this in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you might be saved. No. And you will be saved. If you hear the call, you'll come. Let's look at the practical side of this, the practical, practical focus. What did Jesus want from his disciples here? He called 12 out of the crowd of thousands. What did he want from them? Well, it tells us here. What's the first thing we see? Well, we're asking the question, why did Jesus choose the 12? What did he want out of them? He chose the 12, it says, as messengers. You see that? He appointed the 12 whom he named apostles so that they would be messengers. Messengers of what? Of the gospel. Messengers of God. Messengers of Jesus Christ. Apostles. That's what the word means, by the way. Apostle. Sent one. Messenger. Right? These 12 were to be messengers of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The same message that Jesus has been preaching since day one. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, 15. Preached to the kingdom of God you know, repentance from sin, God is holy, you are not, you need a savior, his name is Jesus, will you come? There's the general call, by the way. You just received it. If the Holy Spirit's working on your life and you have yet to come, and he's saying, your name, come, guess what? You will come. You'll go, hey, the gospel sounds good to me. And here we are, the 12 were chosen by God, by Jesus here in this case, to come to him, to be messengers for him. So how are they to become effective messengers? What did Jesus want with them? What's the first thing we see here? To be with him. Do you see that? Verse 14, and he, Jesus, appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. This is the first critical step of responding to the call, to be with him. The way, the way that Jesus prepared and trained these mostly uneducated men was to spend personal time with them. This is how he did it. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Acts 4.13. Now, when they, who are they? The Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, all these opponents of Christ, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, how rich is that? Even the worldly enemies of Christ can tell when someone's been with Jesus. 
Do our neighbors know that we've been with Jesus? Does your wife know that you've been with Jesus? Do your children know that you've been with Jesus? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus was preparing these 12, and he said, listen, everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. He said, here's the point, guys. One day you're going to be like me. Pay attention to my training as you spend time with me. Do you know how you will become like Jesus to bear fruit for his kingdom? You personally, do you know how you will become like Jesus? It's the same way those 12, spending time with Jesus, being with him. That's how. And how do we spend time with Jesus? Well, where do we discover things about Jesus? His word, right? This is primarily where we spend time with Jesus, in his word. He reveals himself to us. The scriptures reveal things about him. This is where we spend most of our time with Jesus. We also spend time with Jesus by being with other people who are inhabited by the spirit of Jesus, right? So if you have the spirit of Jesus in you and I have the spirit of Jesus in me and we spend time together, we're spending time with Jesus. When I'm with you and you're with me or you with your small group or you're with other believers, Jesus is rubbing off between the two of you or the four of you. That's why we encourage you to be together as Christians in this church. Join a small group so that you can spend more time with the spirit of Jesus in the hearts of Jesus' people, in his word. That's how you spend time with Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, we're being changed into the likeness of Jesus from one degree to another. How? By observing the glory of Jesus, beholding the glory of the Lord. And where is the glory of the Lord revealed, pray tell? The scripture and his people. That's where. When you're encouraged to be more Christ-like because you've observed it in some brother or sister in Christ, you're observing the glory of Christ in that person, and it transforms your heart. The glory of the Lord is seen in his word and in his people. What's the second thing he wanted out of this group of 12? We see, first of all, he wanted them to be with him. Then he wanted them to learn how to preach. Do you see this? To be with him and to preach. Right there, verse 14. He, told, he, told, he chose these 12 to be preachers, people. Do you hear it? He chose them to be preachers. Once Jesus had ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt, the Spirit of Jesus indwelt his 12. They began to preach and preach like crazy. Sometime spending with Jesus, being discipled by him, trained by him, influenced by him, What's going to happen? Skills are going to be developed. Knowledge will become deeper. You'll become proficient. Your master is Jesus. <laughs> You're learning from the best. The record of their growth in faith and preaching skill is an amazing thing to behold in the book of Acts. These that lack basic faith, I mean, these 12 guys were just like you and me. They lacked basic faith. The Gospels are full of stories about their lack of faith. How many times does Jesus say, oh, you of little faith? Well, you get to Acts chapter 2, and preacher Peter, preacher Peter, was up preaching his very first public sermon. What happened? 
3,000 people came to Christ in one sermon. Wow. Something's changed, right? (laughs) And then, in the following few weeks, tens of thousands of residents of Jerusalem came to Christ because the other 12 were preaching on every street corner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and hordes were coming, including, listen to this, Pharisees and priests and scribes. (laughs) The preaching of Jesus couldn't convince them, but the preaching of his disciples turned them into disciples themselves. Jesus called these guys to preach, and boy, did they preach. By the time we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave the 12 the responsibility to be his witnesses, messengers. That's what the messengers, witnesses, apostles, all the same concept. In Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. These 12 guys began to spread over the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we read earlier, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And how they do that? By preaching. That's how. He called them to spend time with him so they could learn to preach. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church that the church was built on this foundation of the apostles. This is what it's founded on, is the preaching of these 12 guys minus Judas. What's amazing is that this prolific group of young preachers began their careers as untrained fishermen who had no clue, no formal theological education whatsoever. But being with Jesus, embracing his call to preach, changed everything. Do you ever wonder about how this part of the church service, what you're experiencing right now, became an established part of Christianity? Why do we have some guy get up and talk for 40 minutes? It seems a little bit odd, even for us Christians, right? Well, let me tell you why. Because preaching is the means God uses to transform his people. That's how we're changed. Preaching moves you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Preaching changes you from being a rebel to being a saint. It's through preaching. Your opinions and attitudes are changed as you sit under the consistent exposition of God's word. If you're occasionally bothered by something I say, that's a good sign the Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart. If you're never never bothered, either you're unconscious or I'm a bad preacher. One of the two. Because the word, the, the object of the word preach is your transformation. And the only way you're transformed from rebel to saint is by becoming uncomfortable with something rebellious in your heart. And then the preaching comes and you go, oh my goodness. Where's that been? Wow. 1 Corinthians 1.21. Paul said that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, someone who hasn't received that specific call, they come in and they listen to a preacher and they go, psycho. (laughs) Right? That's why Paul said it's through the folly of what we preach, God changes people. Preaching is what God uses to sanctify believers. Paul told Timothy to preach the word regularly because in it, people are changed who listen. 
Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How do you get sanctified? How do you get changed? You sit here and listen to the word preached. That's why you come. You don't want uh, a preacher who's not going to preach to you the word. You don't want your preacher to treat you like he would treat his cat. Oh, good kitty. You know, good kitty. No, you don't want that. What you want is a preacher who will confront your sin, who will shed light on the path you're walking, and expose you to God in his word. That's what you want. That's what you need. Many will flock to preachers who will say, good kitty. Very few want to sit under the instruction of confrontational preaching. You're here, I hope, because you want to be changed into Christ-likeness. And that's what happens. So, your spiritual life is at stake during this hour, friends. <laughs> Once you've chosen your preacher, be regularly here, because this is where you are transformed. Jesus called these guys to preach because it transformed the world. <laughs> so, if God calls you today to himself, he's not necessarily calling you to preach as he did these first 12 guys. He still calls preachers for sure, but this time period was unique in the life of the church. At this point in Mark chapter 3, Jesus called them each to preach because he needed preachers to go all over the planet. Today, when he chooses you and adopts you into his family, very few are called to preach. Some are, but we are all called to serve. We are all called to love God, worship God, love and serve others. What's the next thing Jesus wanted from his guys? To have authority. You see that? Send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, to spend time with him, to preach, to cast out demons with his authority. In Matthew's version of the appointment of the apostles, which was read for you just a moment ago, he mentioned that besides having authority to cast out demons, they had authority to heal and raise people from the dead. Why? What was this authority all about? It was because the apostles needed the authority of Jesus Christ to prove or authenticate that their message was from God. You see, these guys were local fishermen. Just think of this. You're sitting in a crowd and this local fisherman who you've known or fished off the dock with since you were six gets up and starts preaching. What are you going to say? I know you, Peter. Yeah, right. And then Peter says, hey, uh, Bob, I know you're questioning what I'm saying. How about this? You know your wife's at home with cancer? She's healed. Go home and check. You know? Okay, I'll listen. Yeah, you in the back who's blind, you're no longer blind. The rest of us will go, okay, what else you got to hear? The authority of Christ was given to these preachers to authenticate the gospel message. That's why he gave them authority. So... What did Jesus want out of these guys? To be with him, to learn to preach, and to have his authority. Let's look at the personal focus now. What does Jesus want from me? In this passage, what, what can I go away with? Well, let me start to answer that question by talking to you about the 12 guys he chose. The New Testament records the list of the 12 apostles in four different places, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And each of these lists is the same. There's 
three subcategories of four in each group, and each group, subgroup is always the same, starting with the first, ending with the third, every single time. Starting with those who were most intimately connected to Christ, those he expected leadership from within the apostolic group, to those who were sent into the uttermost parts of the world, like Andrew to India, etc. These, in the first group, three of them, for example, went with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. None of the other 12 got to witness it, and he told those three, don't say anything until I'm resurrected. These, these groups of disciples were in the same groups their entire ministry. The first group included two sets of brothers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The second group included Philip, Bartholomew, who we've also met as Nathaniel, Matthew, who we know as Levi, and Thomas. The third group, James, son of Alphaeus, not James, the brother of John, but James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, always listed last, of course. What can, what can we learn here? What does Jesus want from me? Here's where we start discovering the answer. Jesus knew these guys. He knew them like the back of his hand, right? You say, well, of course he knew these guys. My point is that he really knew these guys, inside and out, personally and intimately. He spent much time with them, and, and I doubt they talked about the weather. Jesus dug into their personal lives and private lives, and keeping in mind that these conversations weren't superficial, he knew everything about them. Imagine going to a counselor who knows every detail of your life, whether you share it or not. How would that go? It would go something like this. Uh, that's not true. Try again. You know, Jesus intimately knew these guys. Everything about them, their personalities, their strengths, their weaknesses. This small, small band of men spent every day, every night together for three straight years. Jesus knew them. Notice that Jesus gave them nicknames. When you give or receive a nickname, it's probably because you're, you have some level of intimacy with that person, right? Jesus was someone who knew people well and was affectionate. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, nicknames come from a position of affection. They're terms of endearment, really. Our siblings have nicknames, for example. We may have nicknames. Our children and grandchildren have nicknames. Uh, my daughter, Michelle, for example, we've called her Micker since she was a baby. I'm not sure why, but we just do, Micker. Um, my wife, her nickname is Bear. Her sisters call her Bear. Her dad calls her Bear. And I call her Cher, and I think it's because Cher, Bear, and that kind of thing. That's how nicknames come, right? Nicknames are usually these terms of endearments. It was the case with Jesus. Nicknames were, were given as terms of endearment, but beyond terms of endearment was a knowledge of their personalities and a knowledge of their worth and their future worth to the ministry. These particular nicknames. For example, Jesus named Simon, what was his nickname? Peter. What's Peter mean? Rock. When he met Peter, he was only rock-headed. When he was done with Peter, he was a spiritual rock of the church. <laughs> what did he call James and John? Sons of thunder. That, that brings all sorts of visions to your mind, doesn't it? They were brothers who evidently were pretty forceful, outspoken. Some would say rude. Uh, he's just a son of thunder. Big mouth. 
kind of thing. Jesus knew their personalities. He knew their potential as he knows you and yours. So he gave them nicknames into which they would grow. Names meant something to Jesus. So nicknames and then transformation. Jesus transformed them. Matthew the tax collector betrayed his people for a buck. Right? That's what tax collectors did in Jesus' day. They betrayed their own fellow Jews for a buck. Simon the zealot listed there towards the end in the third group. He was a zealot because he was a nationalist. He killed, he killed people who betrayed their own people. Think through what was just said. Matthew made an extra buck by betraying his fellow Jews. Simon the Zealot made a living out of murdering people who gave away fellow Jews. How do you think that relationship went? <laughs> you can imagine. Jesus put these two guys together who were most likely mortal enemies and they became lifelong friends and teammates. He transformed them. Peter would grow from a wavering, boastful, inconsistent, and selfish person into the nickname that Jesus gave him. He became the rock of the early church. Paul called Peter a pillar of the church in Acts 15. He was spoken of, he was the spokesman, rather, Peter was the spokesman for the apostles. He stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin and defended the activity of the apostles. He led the church in Jerusalem into important doctrinal commitments. He was a rock. By God's grace, he grew into the nickname that Jesus gave him. Jesus also saw the natural tendencies of James and John, sons of thunder, and he turned that upside down, and they became bold preachers for Christ. They thundered from the pulpits they preached from. <clears throat> the reaction of the Pharisees to their development, the development of these 12 disciples and 12 apostles, is recorded again in Acts 13. Listen to it again. Now, when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Aren't these the Galilean fishermen who we looked down on for the past 30 years? Oh, yeah, they've been with Jesus. We should see similar transformation in our lives as well as we spend time with Jesus. Do others around us see it? Do our children, our spouses, our neighbors see it? And then finally, Jesus knows and is transforming me. Put your name in that slot. Jesus is transforming you. So the question I want you to think about is, what would Jesus nickname you? What would be your nickname if Jesus were to nickname you? Rock, son of thunder, daughter of thunder? Champ, Speedy, Smiley, maybe that's it. What would he nickname you? You know, would your nickname be a derogatory one? Like Hosea named his own kids? Listen to this. These are the actual names of Hosea's kids. Loser, that's what he called his second son, Loser. His, his son's first name was Not My Kid. How'd you like that to be your name? Hey, Not My Kid, come here. 
real eagle booster there. Of course, Jesus would never name you or nickname you something to disparage you or discourage you, but a name that would reflect who you would become in Christ. What would your nickname be? You wouldn't want to be called Sleepy Creepy or Mr. Magoo. So don't act like that as a Christian. Okay, what, what would Jesus call me? Would Jesus choose me to start with? Well, let me, let me answer those questions. I can tell you what Jesus would call you, and I can tell you if Jesus would choose you. If you believe the gospel, if you've embraced Jesus, he has chosen you. Guess when he chose you? At the exact moment he chose Peter, Andrew, James, and John. At the exact moment. Your name's not listed here because this isn't when he chose them. He chose them, it says in Ephesians 1, in eternity past. That's when you were chosen if you walk with Christ, if you're in Christ. You were chosen along in the same list as Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Simon. That's when you were chosen. And as for what he would nickname you, that will be determined by, that will be determined by the rest of your walk of faith between now and the day you see him. You determine what your nickname will be. What will it be? Jesus may not have chosen you to preach. He may have, but he may not have. But he did choose you as he chose the disciples, as he's chosen every single one who's come to him by faith to bear fruit. And the fruit will last. What is that fruit? Loving God and loving people. Are you bearing fruit that you've been called to bear? Your nickname will reflect that, if that is the case. I'm going to close with this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Embrace it. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we look at this short, simple, clear passage and see so much of ourselves in these disciples. We see uh, insecurities, we see weaknesses, we see sin abounding, and yet we see what they experienced hope, a loving Savior who comes alongside and, and assuages our chaos, gives us a purpose, fills us with love, sends us into the world. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your Spirit would come alongside of us today, starting today, moving forward, to always make much of you to work out the nickname that you would call us, that faithful one, that one who is mighty in the word, that one who is a lover of people. Father, fulfill your purposes in us. 
I pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.